Well, good morning. Whew. I am officially out of breath. I don't know whose idea it was to have that as the last song before I go in and preach. Anyway, um, for those who don't know me, my name is Michelle McKeska. I'm so happy y'all are with us this morning. Uh, if you will open up your Bibles to Acts 26, that is where we are going to be. <clears throat> Word of warning, it is long and it is jam-packed. So, uh, I think I usually do run a bit shorter than Mike, but I don't know. That's up for debate. Uh, but anyway, so I was actually looking at the podcast to see when we started the Acts series. January 15th, 2012. So it was actually shorter. I thought we'd been in it for two years. All right, so about a little bit over a year. We only have two more chapters, and then we're done. I'd like to put up a recommendation for maybe Philemon or Jude for the next book. <laughs> Something that's like a page. I feel like a sense of, we've gotten through this. Yes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I've really enjoyed going through the book of Acts. Uh, it's been challenging uh, for me, and I hope it's been challenging for y'all. Um, I am absolutely loving this weather that we're having right now. Yes. It is wonderful. This is what I call Houston Spring. Okay, where it's just a little chilly, but it's the only time in Houston, and I've grown up in Houston my whole life, it's the only time I actually want to be outside. (laughs) Right once we get into April, it's done. Done deal in Houston. Um, But the one thing that I love, probably more than anything about the season, um, is how it corresponds with Easter and new life and resurrection. Um, While we don't truly have winter here, okay, that's up for debate, Um, you can still look around and see death, right? All of the trees and the plants, they've started to die, and it's really depressing. But the thing that I love about spring is that it's the first time that flowers are starting to bloom. Um, And so that is my shameless plug for the Resurrection Series, uh, Easter Series coming up. Uh, I've seen a bit of what's in the works, what Mike has for us uh, for the Easter Series, and it's going to be good. Um, So to give a little background, Before we dive into Acts 26, uh, the resurrection, as it turns out, is also why Paul here is in a bit of trouble. So he has now, for the third time, about to give his defense. You'd think he'd be a bit tired at this point of giving his defense, but he's going to do it for us one more time. Um, There's a little taste of his last defense in chapter 28, in the last chapter of the book of Acts where he is in Rome. Uh, But here Luke gives us a full treatise. So we um, are going to dive into that this morning. So if you will read with me verses 1 through 3. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Okay, so as of chapter 21, Paul has been arrested. He has been accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which was false. Okay, so the Jews arrest him at Jerusalem. And we saw last week with Mike, right, that he was urged by the churches not to go to Jerusalem. They said, please, we know what's waiting for you there. And he was even prophesied over saying, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be bound. You're going to be arrested. And despite all those things, in wisdom, Paul decides to go. 
he decides to go to Jerusalem, where the prophecies come true. He's arrested. He has already given his defense before the Jewish council, before Felix. Felix is then replaced by Festus, who we'll see here a bit, and he is stuck in red tape in jail for two years. Okay? So finally, he gets a hearing because Festus has brought in the current king of the Jews. All right, so remember King Herod, the guy during Jesus' time, okay? The guy who liked to kill his sons and his wives and also a lot of babies that he thought might potentially be kings one day. Okay, this is his grandson. And luckily for Paul, he is nothing like his grandfather. He's actually a nice guy. Um, so he, I think, is being sincere here when he says, I consider myself lucky be able to give my defense before you, because you actually do know some of these Jewish customs, all right? Festus has brought Agrippa in because he realizes this is a theological issue. I don't even know what to write to Caesar. He wants to go to Rome. I have no idea what this is about. This is some, like, theological argument between Jews. So I need you to sit and tell me what I can write to him. So Paul starts by giving his defense. Okay, verse 4. My manner of life from youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope... I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? A haunting question. So to begin, Paul starts telling his former life, retelling the story. He was known by all to be a Jew. Not only a Jew, but a very loyal Jew, a Pharisee. Okay? So he is telling them this information for two reasons. First, he's trying to communicate to the king, I haven't been hoodwinked by this Jesus movement because of my ignorance, okay? It wasn't like, "Uh, I didn't really know any better, so then when I heard about this Jesus guy, I decided, what the heck? I'll just switch. I'll make a life change. Sounds good, okay? This is not what he's doing. He knew, okay? He knew full well what it meant to believe that Jesus was Messiah. In fact, he says it's because he's a faithful Jew that he saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jewish hope. Which begs the question, right? What is the Jewish hope? We've talked about this a little before, but I think it would be good to refresh us a little bit um, in getting ready for the Easter season. What is the Jewish hope? What were they looking for? According to Paul, it was the promise made by made to the ancestors, okay? So to Abraham. So what was the promise? Well, in Genesis, God says, I am going to take you, I'm going to take your family, and you are going to bless all nations. This is the promise. Not only this, but he says, the Israelites currently are worshiping and they're celebrating the fact that they're longing for this hope when God will bless them and they will be alike to the nations. And it's why he is on trial. 
So let's look at it in more detail here. Flip on over to Isaiah. <coughs> this is going to be the bread and butter of Paul's defense, that what he is preaching is nothing new, that this is what the prophets and what Moses have predicted would happen. So Isaiah chapter 2, what is the Jewish hope? Verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, or teaching, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. These are agricultural tools. We won't need swords anymore. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. <coughs> o house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Flip on over again to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Both of these passages show us that the hope for Israel actually includes the entire world, all peoples. Whenever God returns, it will be a blessing not only for the Jews, but for all. Not only this, but as Isaiah 25 says, death itself will be swallowed up. The covering, the veil that is over all of us, the thing that we cannot escape, death itself will be swallowed up. Their hope was in the resurrection. So, uh, from very early on, you would see that the prophets were speaking to Israel, and they had come across this truth, that there was a bigger enemy than Babylon or Assyria. That to look at the true enemy, one only had to look in the mirror. That there was this evil rooted deep inside of us that we couldn't seem to eradicate, that we couldn't seem to get rid of. And even in times of peace, Israel still neglected their poor. Even in times of peace, they still lost children to death and disease. So from very early on, there was a hope for something beyond just peace, beyond just their 
nation elevated. But there was a longing for salvation from death itself. Um, today we hear slogans uh, like, join us in the fight against cancer, right? Join us in the fight against AIDS, uh, or so on. And I, I can't help but analyze that language. How do you fight cancer? What has gone so wrong in the world that our very cells will eventually start to morph and to shift and actually attack our organs? What has gone so wrong in the world that our own bodies will eventually attack us? What has gone so wrong in the world that we have affluent nations that can't take care of their poor? My husband was listening to a radio station and they were talking about um, this block that had done the math. So they calculated how much food we had globally thrown out. So food that had gone bad, food that we had just thrown out. They said that a fourth of that food could have fed the poor, period. Globally, not just in the nation of America, right? If we would give a fourth of that food, we'd be able to feed the poor for a year. What has gone so wrong in the world that we use our resources and it doesn't phase us that that harms other people? What has gone so wrong in the world that 27 million people are still in slavery? Salvation, then, needs to be more than a cure for cancer. It needs to be more than freedom for the captives. Because if you free her, if you free someone who is caught in slavery, she will still be a slave to sin. And if you cure someone who has cancer, guess what? They still die. You haven't got a, all right, you're the exception to the rule. This no longer applies to you. Salvation has to be resurrection. Salvation is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So this is where Paul gets in trouble. Okay? Because resurrection, all right, the Jews, at least a majority of them at this time, believed that the resurrection would happen, right? We just saw it. Our prophets and Moses were looking forward to it. They were hoping for the resurrection. So why is Paul getting in so much trouble for saying that it's happened? Okay, well, here's, here's one of the issues, okay? The Jews believed that the timeline of the world is set up in two ages, all right? So you have the current old evil age where death, disease, war, those rule, they reign, okay? And when God returns, when Yahweh comes, this is called the day of the Lord when you're reading it in the prophets. The day of the Lord signifies God's return to his people. And he defeats death, which means resurrection for everybody. Resurrection for those who are faithful to Yahweh. Now, here's why Paul gets in trouble. He shifts the timeline. He says, guess what? We've seen a guy raised from the dead, and that kind of changes everything. Everything that we thought about what would happen. And we still believe now, because Jesus has raised one person, 
that God's new world has started in the midst of the old one so that they're overlapped and there's tension with the new and the old world, the old world fighting to survive. The tension that we see, this is the tension where Paul is caught in as he is presenting his case to the authorities. So, he says, Jesus, Israel's unexpected Messiah, is the one who has brought this new world to birth. And I'm haunted by this question in verse 8, where Paul asks, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Here's why this question haunts me. He's not speaking to a bunch of naturalists or atheists. He's speaking to a room of people who at least hold that God is the creator of all life. He's speaking to people who should know better, but they haven't carried the thought through. If God is the creator of all life, he can also restore that same life. And I think we see this today, what I've called it, and I think what a lot of people have termed it as practical deism. So we, deism would say that God started the world, right, and then he walks away from it. He does the gentlemanly thing, and he lets the world run on its own, lets ourselves be pulled up by our bootstraps, okay? He doesn't intervene. It would be a violation of his nature. Practical deism would be people who would say that they believe God is active in the world. They believe God can do things, that he can change evil and corrupt systems. But yet, they live like he's actually very far off. Like he's too busy to be concerned with what's going on in their lives. Like he's too busy to be bothered with the issue of slavery in our world. Or that we'd be surprised if anything really did change. We'd be surprised if God all of a sudden showed up in a miraculous way and freed 27 million people. We'd be surprised. Uh, a good barometer for how much of a practical deist you are is a look at your prayer life. Um, and I didn't like what I saw when I asked myself this question. Right? We lose that dependency on God. Practical deism. Now, Paul's going to move on here and say, okay, I will give you this. I wasn't immediately convinced. So let's read on in verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice say to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness 
to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from people, from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. It's a powerful testimony. This is the third time that we are hearing what happens to Paul on the Damascus Road. So in chapter 9, we're actually given the account when Paul encounters the risen Christ, and then he tells it again in chapter 22. Uh, and Luke, as Mike has pointed out, is a great storyteller. So he knows that this is the third time that we're hearing it, so he's going to try and freshen it up a bit. Um, and also, Paul is going to deliberately um, shape his testimony in a way that addresses the charges against him, uh, which is, he's a great speaker. He's pretty impressive. Um, so, we'll look at the new uh, information that we have, um, the things that uh, Luke has provided for us, and they are extra sayings from Jesus. So, right in verse 14, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Anybody raise cattle in here? All right. We actually had one hand raised in the first service, so <laughs> they could have taken over at this point. Okay, that's what I thought, all right? I'm a city girl. I don't know what goads are, okay? Um, so kicking against the goads, think of a cattle prod. Does that, does that still not help? Okay, so um, a stick with a pokey thing at the end of it. Yes, yes, okay. A stick with a pokey thing. <laughs> okay, you actually jab this at the cow and every time I've heard this from the people okay from the one person from the first service that has done it um, it kicks back at you like you have to stay pretty far because as soon as you poke it it kicks at you okay so this is the imagery that Jesus gives of Paul trying to persecute the church he says it's pointless it's futile usually whenever a cow tries to go against this cattle prod it ends up really harming the animal Okay, so he says, this is going to harm you, and wake up, stupid, I'm God, you can't fight this. Okay, you are going in this direction, whether you like it or not. So, what I would love to see today is hashtag kicking against the goads. That would make my heart super happy. <laughs> I don't know, like, when you'd be able to find a situation where you could do that, but props to you if you can. Kicking against the goads. Thank you, Hayden. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Uh, that's what I like to hear. Um, okay, moving on. <laughs> Second new piece um, is that he is called to be a servant and a witness to the Gentiles, specifically to the Gentiles, okay? So this is the charge brought against him, right? It is 
that he has preached to the Gentiles. Now, something uh, that was also evidence that the new age, God's new world, had started, as I said, we pointed out in Isaiah, was that all of the Gentiles would start coming and worshiping Yahweh. So when Jesus shows up in a vision, okay, and says, you're going to go preach to non-Jews. They're going to come and worship me. That would be a sign to any Jew saying, oh, new world, new age. God's new world has started. Day of the Lord, it's happening right here and now. And also, hi, Jesus, you're alive. That would be a significant clue that things have changed. Um, So he brings that in. Not only this, but he says, I haven't said anything that the prophets of Moses haven't said. This is what they've pointed towards. This is what they are looking for. And in verse 23, we're given very condensed uh, gospel message that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And it's right here, right when he's hidden his point home, that he gets very rudely interrupted by Festus. Okay? Um, so verse 24, Festus says, And as he was saying these things, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Thanks, Festus. Thank you for that. Okay? So Festus is the only quote-unquote, Gentile in the room. The only one who's inexperienced with the Jewish faith. All right? Paul's now starting to talk about resurrection and these weird theological issues. So any outsider would start to say, this is sounding weird. This is sounding crazy. Um, So we have been, I teach seniors over at Houston Christian. We have actually been, for the past week, going through the Trinity. Okay? Trying to explain the Trinity has been one of the toughest things I have tried to accomplish. And I will catch myself thinking, whenever we're in our discussions, I'll catch myself analyzing my own language. Have any of y'all ever done that? And you just start to wonder, if somebody came into the classroom who had absolutely no experience with Christianity and starts hearing me talking about one substance, three persons, and Jesus being fully divine and fully human, and that the persons should be understood as relations not actually people, they might think you were a raving lunatic. Like, they might sit there and say, what is she selling? What is this? It doesn't make sense. Okay? When we share the gospel, a common reaction is for people to think you're mad. It's a common reaction. Uh, So I had one of my former college students, Sam, actually come and speak about her experiences helping um, these women who were caught in human trafficking in Houston. Some of y'all know about Sam's endeavors there. Um, and I was just thinking about how, how crazy that sounds. That on her Friday evenings, when she could be doing anything she wants, right? Friday evenings is the time to go and have fun. On Friday evenings, she goes and she prays around brothels and cantinas. And on her morning, if she ever has a spare morning free... She's sad when she doesn't. She goes to these women and she gives them coffee and roses and she asks to pray for them, to show love on them. Women who have been told from the time that they were in slavery that they're nothing, that they're worthless, 
less than dogs, that their family doesn't want them back. She's going to these women, and she is speaking life. Now, she has gotten some backlash from her family, from the actual pimps, okay, that are there. She has gotten backlash, saying, you're crazy for doing this. This is dangerous. And you shouldn't be associating in these areas. But she keeps on because she believes the kingdom of God has arrived. She keeps on because Jesus has risen from the dead. And that changes everything. It changes everything. So Paul is unfazed. I would not be surprised if he was phased. Uh, he has proven himself pretty worthy up to this point. So he responds to Festus in verse 25. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For him, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So, Paul responds by putting the king himself on the spot. Okay, this is not my move. If I am sitting or standing before this court and my life is on the line... I don't know, maybe I'm going to compliment his robes and say, you know, King, you were looking super swell this morning. Can I just say that robe in your eyes, it just, it really goes. This is good. This is really, you know, that would be my move. Paul says, hey, guess what? You think I'm crazy? I know for a fact the king believes this stuff. I know for a fact he believes the prophets. Oh, king. Oh, king. Yeah. Don't you? He puts the king on the spot. Okay, so now the king has two options. He can say yes, and then he, his fate is sealed. Paul's got him, right? He can say, yeah, I believe in the prophets. But if he says no, then he is in super hot water with his people. He is the king of the Jews, and he says, nope, I don't believe in the prophets. Yeah, like words not going to get around, okay? So, as any very able if somewhat slimy politician would do. He avoids the question entirely, okay? So he doesn't even go near that question, right? He says, uh, here he says in verse 29, no, sorry, 28. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Thanks for not answering the question. There you go. He just responds with another question. I can't say that I blame him. I mean, Paul, as Micah said, Paul can read the situation. He's very good at understanding what's going on. And he can see an opportunity here. He can see an opportunity, maybe, to win his case over, to put a grip on the spot and get him to say, yeah, I believe in the prophets. And then his case, his defense is done. It's like, I'm going to sit down. He listen to King Agrippa because he's just confirmed what I'm saying. So, then in verse 29, again, Paul unfazed unfazed by the avoiding of the question. In fact, he turns it, right? He says, I would to God 
that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Um, how many of y'all are doing the Beth Moore Bible study on Tuesday nights? Yeah. I've only made it to one, uh, but the one that I did make it to was uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, and we were talking about being vulnerable, being vulnerable with who you're in ministry with, um, and really taking Paul's example to heart. Um, 1 Thessalonians 2, if y'all want to flip there. <clears throat> Paul talks about his love for the churches, uh, and he compares it to that of a nursing mother. So he says, but we were gentle among you. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. So this is not out of character for Paul. He is not being insincere at this point. His heart is that his own captors would come to know the grace and the love of Christ. I don't know how you'd do that. I don't think I could do that. I don't think if I was standing before my captors, I would say, yes, my heart for you is that you would know Jesus because he has been so rich and wonderful to me that I can't think of a better thing in the world, and I want you to have it. So I am not um, a mom, okay? Uh, when Paul talks about the love for his churches as being one of a nursing mother, um, I can't really understand what that means, what that's like. Um, but I was over at the Bowers, and I was talking to Jen, who's not here because she's with little baby Riley, um, who is super cute, and I'm the favorite. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm over there um, and I'm talking to Jen first time mom I'm saying okay so this is what I hear like what has changed now that you have given birth what has changed and she just looks at me and she says everything everything has changed and the love that is just pouring out of her for this child I've only seen it and I just it almost took on a living force. Um, and it just... So when Paul uses this analogy here, he uses this metaphor, I buy it. I buy it. He's bought into the gospel. Because only the gospel can do this, right? Like, there's no other place that I've seen this where people willingly love their enemies. When we were at the start of the first uh, week, we looked at... Um, the martyrs. We were studying the martyrs and we saw their willingness to go to death. The people that the bishops had to stop them from volunteering said, Stop, no, no, no. You don't need to volunteer, okay? Because their love for Christ overwhelmed them. Only the gospel can do this. Only the gospel can produce a love for our captors. And it is only because Jesus has raised from the dead that I believe we can love our enemies. That's the only reason why I think we can do that. Not because of anything within ourselves. It's not natural for us. 
But God's new world has started. And that changes everything. Everything. So verse 30. We'll conclude here. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Also a very haunting verse. Right? Paul decides to make the appeal because he's been stuck in red tape. But now because of that, he's on the road to Rome, which is where he wants to be. But he'll be going there in chains. And so Mike will wrap up for us the rest of Paul's journey. And I want to leave you um, today with two questions that we can be thinking on and dwelling over for this next week. Um, as maybe we're participating in Lent. It's the first Sunday for Lent, by the way. Um, have we truly bought into the gospel? Have we really bought in? Or are we more often than not practical deists? We think that God can't really change anything. <clears throat> and what does it look like when the church encounters the risen Christ? What does that look like? I know those are open-ended questions, but I've done that on purpose because I want us to really dig deep into those questions. Um, and while we may not be struck down with a vision on a road, we encounter... Christ when we open up his word. That's why we pour over the scriptures every time we meet. That's why we come and we share communion every week, every time that we get together. It's more than just the studying of information or the consuming of bread. We're meeting Christ. We're in some way participating with him. If that makes you feel a bit weird, see question one. Um... <laughs> Now, again, the kingdom has come. I can't stress that enough. I feel like that was the centerpiece of Paul's word to us. And I think that you and I, as a church, have to work out what that means um, and how we're now to live and act because of it. So I encourage you today to be thinking about that, that life has forever been changed. The world has forever been changed because Jesus has raised from the dead. Would you pray with me? God, we are humbled before you, as Paul was on the Damascus Road. Um, we are called to repentance, called to turn our very lives around, because the world has been turned upside down, God. We ask that you would um, awaken us, stir us, fuel us with your fire, give us your eyes, so that we can see the world as you see it, and know that the reality that the world gives us is a lie that war can cease, that we can love our enemies, that sight can be restored to the blind, that the dead can raise. We love you. It's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.